everybody. Welcome to this episode of Inside Insights, a podcast powered by Zavi. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Patricia and our Hello. producer, Kelsey. Good day, ladies. Good day, Ryan. So I have to tell you about, I'm wearing this t-shirt today. It's called The Stray Dog. Also not a sponsor of the Inside Insights podcast. But as somebody who, uh, I wasn't born on the East Coast. I was born on the West Coast, but I've lived in New England more or less my entire life you were born in the west coast why didn't i know that i was actually born in reno nevada my mother was uh working in lake tahoe when she had me uh no wonder why i like to ski so much because she was skiing when she was like eight and a half months pregnant with your boy at i think the tender age of 19 god love you mom um so now my mother is a hip young grandma to my three kids uh, which is fantastic but yeah i was so i've lived in uh new england my whole life and new england is uh wonderful for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that you're on the ocean. So as a result of that, I spend most of my time seeking sea. This summer, I went to a wedding in South Bend, Indiana. Um, one of my colleagues got married. Shout out to Mark Resnick. It was a wonderful wedding. But on the way back to Chicago, we started to stop in all of these lake towns in Michigan. And this is one of them, New Buffalo, Michigan. I'm a big New Buffalo guy, and I realized that lake living in the Midwest is not something to sniff at. It's beautiful and similar to like harbor towns in Massachusetts or even like in Europe or in Columbia and other places. It's got a similar vibe. It's just fresh water. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to There's rush. No the water There's no hurricane warning that you have to batten down for. Correct. Correct. Or you just maybe some tornadoes. You got to watch out for that. Anyways, we digress. My guess or should I say our guest today, is Fabrania Ruoco. And before we hit recording, we talked about another part of the world that has beautiful scenery, which is Italy, where her family's from. Um, Fabrania has been in a variety of insights roles, both as an independent consultant, as a head of insights. And interestingly, uh, the podcast you're about to listen to is the first time I ever actually met her. Even though I exchange LinkedIn posts, messages, debates, comments with her all the time. And so it's it's an interesting reflection in like how you can build a virtual friendship with somebody. And so we decided to do this podcast without ever speaking to each other on the phone and just LinkedIn commenting. Um, and it was a fun conversation. So why don't we let everybody listen to it? Hello, everybody. I am joined today by Fabrania Ruoco. And I, um, this is a cool interview for me because Fabrania and I have become friends from social media. And today is the first time we've ever actually spoken. Hi, Fabronia. Hi, Ryan. Great to be here. We're so excited about joining you this afternoon. Yeah, same same here. And, and we were just talking, folks, uh, for almost half of our time that we scheduled about the wonders of Italy and art and social media. And it, I wanted to start here. So you were saying to me just a second ago that social media fluency is relatively new to you. Mm. And it's interesting to me because I wouldn't, A, wouldn't have known that, but B, uh, that's how we know each other. We know each other mm -hmm. from engaging and, and different provocations and different thoughts. And so I guess just to start, like, how did you sort of get comfortable in your career with social media and how have you navigated what it, what I see as a very, uh, a very clear and distinctive personal brand that is elevating insights and coaching and advocating for the industry around us? That's a great question. And I, I don't even really know how to answer it. So I guess I'll just walk you through how it kind of evolved. I think COVID changed a lot of things for a lot of us. So suddenly, 
during COVID, a lot of things moved online. And so it opened up a whole new scale of opportunity. And a lot of experts and thought leaders and insight started doing discussions and podcasts and talks. And it just kind of fired me up. And I thought, you know what, I'd love to have a go at doing some of that. Now, I'd always had a LinkedIn profile, but I hadn't really brought it to life. I I don't Mm. think I'd really um, brought to life the person behind it. It was more like a static CV. So I think just watching other people and being inspired gave me the confidence to kind of have a go. And then the more I had a go, the more people I met and the more conversations I got engaged in. And it was a lot of fun. It it wasn't planned. There was no strategic plan. There was no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this. I'm going to build that. It was just me having fun and connecting with people. It's funny. I'm actually uh, similar. I've never really had a strategy and everybody says you're supposed to. Um, I post if I have something to say and I don't if I don't. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm very honest as well in what I post. Um, Like sometimes I post about books. Sometimes I post about uh, insight related topics. Recently, I posted a lot about AI following you guys and the work Zappy was doing. But again, it's it's usually I wake up and I think, what what is inspiring me today? What's motivating me? What have I read that has resonated? Again, there's no there's no real plan. You're making me think I need a strategic plan now. <laughs> I, no, I, I, one of the last episodes was with Joe Lepore and we were having a similar conversation. Mm. Like, I think, I actually think it's quite disarming for people listening. Like you don't need to be a thought leader. You need to be no. yourself and you don't need a social media strategy. I don't have one. I mean, no. I, um, but, but, it, but to be fair, it looks like you would, right? Like you do a great job of canvassing all the various podcasts mm. and, big announcements in the industry and offering your perspective. Mm. And I, I imagine a lot of people with particularly a corporate insights background felt like I had a woman of actually our co-host, Patricia, she said to me when she used to work at companies like Coke or Colgate, she'd be scared to post because it looked in the inside of those businesses in the early days of say LinkedIn, that posting there looked like you were looking for a job. And so mm. it was almost like a subtly frowned upon dynamic. Whereas I think that's kind of really changed now. I think there's also there's a group of people that I follow and I'm connected with that have done lovely branding and got lovely coordinated photography that they launch with all their posts and it's very slick. So there are people who are taking it pretty seriously and using it to market their business or their brand and that's lovely. Um, but there's also individuals who are kind of experimenting and feeling their way and I probably think I fall into that category and for me mm-hmm. it's just it's fun. It's my downtime when I'm relaxing after work. Uh, and it's just genuinely the things that I'm interested in. So the industry things are things that I'm noticing. The coaching pieces are things that I've done in my course that are, have you know landed or made a, um, a difference to my learning. And the podcasts, I just genuinely devour them. I love listening to podcasts of an evening. So Sometimes I just think it's good to share. And the more you share, people come back and say, oh, you know, that was great. Have you got any more that you'd recommend? So, yeah, I hope it is helpful for people. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a question for you about podcasts. Um, You listen to them in the evening? Both. I'm an early riser. So I wake up probably about 5.30, 6 a.m. So I kind of listen while I'm making coffee, listen to a podcast. And then usually when I'm winding down in the evening, like to listen to one or two. 
So I think it's probably uh, relatively well known at this point, if you listen to the show, that I might host a podcast, but I'm not a big listener of podcasts. And I'm trying to change that because I've had the times I've listened to podcasts, I've had life changing insights. Crazy story. Oh, wow. From the time I was 18 years old to my mid 30s, I never exercised. That's not good as a father of three children with a stressful life. And I listened to a podcast in May of 2020, randomly, because again, it's not habitual for me. And I heard this person say, yeah, all I do is I get my heart rate up for 20 minutes a day. And for whatever reason, you know, when something happens and it just cuts all the way through, um, I was like, wait, I can do that. And ever since I've just worked out every day and my body is like more healthy than it was. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I was listening to uh, a podcast, um, Joe Lapore, who was another guest of mine's podcast with this gentleman named Lars, who's an innovator. And I got insights that I brought to work the very next day. So, so all this to say, I'm also on a journey to try to find a space in my life to listen to podcasts. So your post will be helpful for me. One thing that I'm quite ruthless about, and I have have been become more so in the last few years, is about how I use my time. Mm. So I used to watch a lot more TV than I do now, you know, just, you know, casual stuff, the news, movies, whatever. But now I'm a lot more choiceful. And I think I I actually prefer reading a book, listening to a podcast where I feel a sense of learning and growth. I still watch TV, don't get me wrong, but I think I've limited... um, the kind of activities that don't have any kind of productivity, though you do need to decompress and you do need to watch an entertainment and just, you know, relax as well. So I do do that, but not in the quantities that I did before. Yeah, it, it resonates with me. Uh, full disclosure, I am uh, one of the billion people who's currently watching Suits on Netflix uh, oh. and I'm enjoying it. Time is the one thing mm. that is a, is a truly finite resource and it's usually the thing that controls us. And so how we spend it is actually what yeah. matters. Um, and and yeah. so being intentional about time is, I, 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 I want to talk to you about coaching in a second, but people are not, by and large, in control of their time. And you, so it's funny, you said social media, you didn't have all these intentions and strategies. No. You choose to listen to podcasts and spend time there. And so as a result, you show up authentically. Yeah. I'm not staging anything I'm not I'm just being myself yeah exactly and, that, and since I started doing that pe- people connect with you and you, your followers increase and organically because you're not you're not staging something you're just being true to your own values and purpose yeah that's it and I, I think everybody's everybody's great at something and so if you're if you find that in life you're you're in a beautiful place um so so Fabronia you have an interesting uh, professional profile to me because you're an insights person, but you also yeah. do executive coaching. So I want to talk to you about coaching for a minute. And the yeah. reason I'm talking about coaching is it's a passion point of mine. Um, and I believe anybody who's in a people manager role should be spending more time coaching than managing. Mm. It's, that's how you get the best out of people. But some, give me a little bit of context of like, your philosophy of coaching and, and and some of the some of the techniques you use to help people uh, do their best work and to get the, the most out of their life. I think with me again, it started in COVID with my niece and nephew starting university. So I did probably a little bit of mentoring with them and they were the ones who turned around. It was my niece especially who said, have you thought about doing coaching, you, you know, official coaching? not just coaching in your job, which we all do to a certain degree, but actually doing a coaching certificate, because I think it's something you'd be good at. 
So the light bulb went up at that point. I'd never really thought about it. And then I inquired about it and a few uh, peers in the industry had done some coaching. And so I asked around and ended up at Henley Business School. And it opened up a whole new uh, perspective on coaching because when we're coaching at work, it's more teaching, if, if you like, getting people up to speed and helping them um, learn the tools that they need to do the job. Coaching in the sense of what I've been learning at Henley is all about supporting and providing a safe space so individuals can do their own thinking. So it's an exploration that you do together in partnership, a partnership of trust, but it enables the individual to come to their own conclusions. We don't give advice unless expressly asked for it. So if they ask to be mentored, you can obviously mentor or offer opinions. But the whole p point of the exercise is to guide them through an exploration and often just creating that space where they have time to think. And sometimes there are moments that just go in silence whilst the coachee is reflecting is a beautiful thing because, as you said before, time is such a commodity. It's such a premium um, that, you know, to have that special time to reflect, it can be very tricky. Yeah, it, it's it's true. So you actually said the words. Have you ever read Nancy Klein's book, Time to Think? Yeah, and also the promise that changes everything. They they were f seminal books, I think, for me because I'd never really considered that. And also coming from an Italian family where everyone talks loudly over each other, there's all of that dynamic, and it's perfectly culturally acceptable. This whole um, concept of actually be giving persons a person space and silence was a bit strange for me at first. Yeah, I can see it, and and there is a real tension of coaching versus apprenticeship or management because you know like this happens to me and maybe maybe this resonates with you i'm talking to somebody and they're they need space to think my yeah. subconscious is going here's the answer yeah because i've ha i've had that permutation of situation happen a million times and the worst thing you could do for somebody in that moment when they're thinking it through is give them the answer but there is a profound uh, benefit to apprenticeships. So I used to work uh, in an office way back in the day. And about a million times a day, I would go into my boss, Jeff's office, uh, and ask him questions. And that was apprenticeship. It was like, what should I do? What do you think about mm. this? But to your point, most people have the answer in their head. And a lot of yeah. the times they just need help thinking it through. And yeah. I think there's like a tension of getting into those different head spaces. And so yeah. I guess how do you recommend people in a managerial role navigate those? By, by asking more questions. So rather than telling people what to do, which undermines people's confidence, even though you're doing it with the best of intentions, asking quite incisive questions. So how do you think we should go about it? What do you think we should do next? Empower the person, give them space to think through, you know, what the options are and come up with a, a, a strategy on their own. I think the coaching we do at Henley is very humanistic. So it's designed to create self-agency in the individual because we all have the power to unlock our own, our own answers on topics that are um, on our minds. So it's also respect for the uh, individual that you know they have the capability, you know they have the competencies. I think in business often we don't listen to listen we listen to talk 
We're already yes. preparing our next reel as the, the person is still talking. And in coaching, you learn to be in the moment. You learn to be really uh, present. And uh, Do you know the book by Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now? No. That talks a, yeah, that talks a lot about being in the present moment and the, the strength and the energy and resilience you can build from tapping into that. So just focusing on that individual. What are they saying? What are you noticing? You know, uh, when they, when a person speaks, it's not just verbal. There's a lot of nonverbal cues, facial expressions, looking away, sighing. Uh, um, sometimes they might sit up straight or slouch back. There's lots of cues that give you an indication to the emotions that they may be consciously or subconsciously experiencing. And that's that's the power of coaching. You kind of tap into that and explore further. Yeah, and then, and then the cool thing I like about coaching is the this concept. I, I use this phrasing a lot, but if you were my coach, the pen stays in my hand and it's on me to do the work. Exactly. And I think a lot of times there's an unintended disempowering consequence of if I, if you were my boss and I came to you and, and you're just like, yeah, just do that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I'm going to, now I'm going to condition mm. myself to ask for Bronia the next time I have something because it doesn't behoove me to think on my own. I think there's a really interesting, like just a balancing act for people managers. Cause I, I would recommend anybody who can gets a coach. I have an executive coach. Yeah. Um, and I'm at a point now where she's with me all the time. And so I can like, I, I, yeah. With me now, Nora, appreciate you. Oh, um, that's, that's nice. But you might not have the benefit of doing it. So I, I think a lot of stuff, like we do this at Zappy for Bronia. I'll give you an example. There's a woman that works at Zappy who is in a job that requires her to organize people and whip them into shape. She wants to be authentic and she's calm and quiet. Mm. So she's getting coached by somebody who's a VP who has a similar disposition to her in a completely different functional role. Because his his skill set and her and personality are sort of harmonized, but they're not uh, affiliated in the org chart per se, right? So there's mm -hmm. one way to do that. Uh, I think in the managerial role, there's a really important responsibility to say, am I am I helping with a solution or am I helping being a sounding board? Because those are completely different dispositions. Yeah, and that's why we contract at the beginning of a a, a set of sessions or an individual session. We contract and and ask what is the work we're going to do so that we're working in partnership and also so that the coach doesn't lead the agenda because the person who this is the benefit for is the coachee. Um, you know, coaching is not about your performance as a coach. It's about being in service to the other individual, whether it's just supporting them by listening, by providing um, questions that help them explore and navigate the topic, um, by helping them figure out an action plan, you know, whatever the work is that you're yeah. doing for that hour that you've contracted to do you're in service to them uh it's not about you it's not about your profile it's not about your performance it, you know it's not the Fabronia show it's about that person walking away with having had a few aha moments and if they have an aha moment a breakthrough it's the big beginning of a shift in their behaviors which then leads to growth and when they come back and you start to see that it's such a beautiful thing it is it really is when you see when you see the penny drop in someone like yeah I, I always see it like I've seen this in a few people and it's one of the more motivating things as a leader when someone sees a problem and they're intrinsically obsessed with it and they're thinking about it and the penny drops. It's just a really wonderful 
thing. Um, but it, it requires intentionality for those of you who are in formal roles mm. and your company might not be affording you uh, the opportunity to bring in a coach for one of your employees or for somebody who's maybe working their way through their career and your boss maybe isn't natural at it. I would encourage you to contract. I think for, for Brian, what you said really resonates with me. Contracting mm. is something we don't do nearly enough in settings within business. Mm. And it's how you can really understand each other. Like, okay, what are we yeah. actually do? Like yeah. even in ways of working, if I think about insights, you know, I work with a number of different leaders. They all have different styles. So I contract, how would you like us to work together? Because some have more of a style where they want to take a bit more of a leading interest in insights. Others are happy for you to take the bulk of the organizational aspect, but everyone is is different and has maybe different needs and different expectations of, of what they need to deliver in their roles. So contracting and just being clear, it, again, it builds that trust and partnership. And that's where the magic happens because then when you have that trust, you know, you, you often get asked, well, you know, I'm not going to be in tomorrow. Can you do that presentation? Can you lead this? And, and it, you end up as an insider working more in the marketing strategy sphere of things and not just being uh, a data um, analyzer, if you like. Yeah, which which is important. So I think people t take away, have the awkward, vulnerable contracting discussion because then the unlock yeah. people. Um, so yeah. the reason, I wanted to talk to you about coaching first is a lot of our LinkedIn discussions we've had have been around elevating insights. And, mm -hmm. I, and I'm of the view, uh, personally, if we use technology effectively, mm -hmm. insights people will elevate. And that I think the nub of the debate that we will have, and I will say it now and we can have our debate. Yeah. I don't think companies... And I'm, and I'm calling on all of you clients. Yeah. I don't think enough enablement and development of talent is happening, which is why we started with coaching, to let people effectively use all these toys that are being thrown at them to do the strategic work. And, and a lot of people that I observe, I mean, I work with 300 corporate insights teams at Zappi, mm. maybe more, Yeah, are basically stuck between two paradigms and I don't see enough emphasis being put on talent development and that's actually the nub of my friction but so I, with that as a backdrop I mean what do you see in terms of the tension of the rise of technology but also the continuous need for insights professionals to be more strategic more connected um, versus in the weeds of the data yeah. I think our banter started off when you were posting about the disruption that AI was going to bring. Because, you know, Zappi, you guys are well known for your disruptive approach, and, it, and it's a fantastic approach in the industry. But you were talking about how AI could mean the death toll of the uh, researcher. I think there are bigger issues even before you get to AI in that company cultures are still basically dictating the profile of insight. So 100%. So you have some uh, you have some industries where insight is more autonomous, is seen as a autonomous support to the marketing function. You have others where insight is still part of the marketing function. Um, you have cultures where insight is seen as an executional team. We ask you deliver, and you have teams and corporations where insight is setting the strategic plan and agenda. Now I've been fortunate; a lot of my roles have been in the more strategic 
field and I've worked with senior stakeholders. So that's why my banter back to you was, but that's not how I see it because my experience has been different. But that's not to say what is really happening out there is still the profile, the profile of insights is still struggling to get through. And AI is causing more complexity because you can't take the lead with it if you haven't established your own function yet, your own gravitas. They're not going to let you play with the toys if you're not delivering as a as an insight team that is supposed to affect the growth agenda. So there's a cultural job to be done before we can start getting jiggy with the tech. Uh, so we actually don't have much banter. I couldn't agree with everything you just said. <laughs> it's the nub of what pisses me off. Yeah. It, you know, w- when I joined Steve in 2014 to build Zappy, I thought to myself, if you can commoditize quant, you'll elevate the insights profile so that they're not doing testing all day. They're sitting yeah. on data. And yeah. still to this day, nine years later, the cultural problem is the biggest blocker of evolution yeah. because it's not sit above the data. It's, oh yeah, we can be more reactive because we can get an answer tomorrow. And that's not the point. You're supposed to be learning, not preempting, preempt. But the problem, Ryan, I think also comes in that we're in a cost of living crisis. The high inflation rate has affected company structures. And what happens? Insight research gets seen as a bit of a luxury and it gets cut. And the marketeers are then expected to do their own insights. I mean, marketeers on the whole are pretty research savvy. They're pretty good at uh, uh, you know, analyzing their own data as part of their own uh, understanding of the marketing mix. But to add the whole insight piece onto what they have to do already is too much. They can't wow. then give it the focus that it needs. So we go through, the, we we kind of surge through these cycles of uh, resource, cut, resource, cut, resource, cut. So the the graph is is never a clear trajectory of developing that insight profile. You're always starting again because you're going through another, oh, well, they, they, we had five people in the team. We now only have two. Then you go back to five. You start again. Then the cuts come in again. So until we get a consistent um, commitment to resourcing the insight team, it's going to be very difficult for those teams to really build that profile. Now, there are some organizations that do it well, um, but they are committed because they see the benefit of investing in the insight function. But cost of living crises don't, you know, they don't help. And, you know, everybody would love to be working more with the um, automated tools. But that also takes time at the beginning for you to get up to speed on what they can do. And there's so many apps and things now that, you know, that that requires resource. So, yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but I think the, the whole culture piece is, is still significant. And then again, adding to that, I think there are individuals in our industry who are more MRX focused, who are more about the market research. They're more operational. They enjoy doing the delivery of the projects and going out and researching the consumers. And that's, right. that's all well and good. But those individuals are not going to raise an insight profile in a big in a big team, say in a big pharmaceutical company where you've got some really savvy and at times, you know, can, can appear quite difficult stakeholders. So it's also you need the right personalities to do the right jobs in the insights and MRX field. There's a lot in what you just said to unpack. So so I'm going to go in order. The first the first thing is these swings. You know, you could call them centralized, decentralized, big team, small team. But I would also add one thing, continuity. Mm. 
I mean, every Absolutely. eight months, there's a new head of insights with a new regime. And so how the hell do you establish something if the company keeps changing? I, I don't I don't understand it. I mean, I, I'm, we're, we're victimized of this in our business. I see it all the time. Someone comes in with yeah. bullish intentions. Yeah. And then there are other issues, like if the, the previous team hasn't set up a knowledge management base, there's data that's not been uh, put into a repository that everyone can use. So, you know, even before you get to AI and synergizing and holistically analyzing and interpreting data, you need to have all the data sitting in one place that you can get. Hey, it. So this you... is, yeah, so this, this, this is where I'm at. I think we're kind of blinkered by the fact we've got AI. So it means that we're further down the line, more advanced than we actually are. We've actually got quite a few jobs that we need to do first. No, so this is actually the nub of my problem. So the the MRX persona that you're talking about was was a was a much more relevant job, I think, 10 years ago than it will be in 10 years. And I've done it myself wow. in my agency days, where that was my role to construct the surveys, to deliver to the clients, to meet the client objectives, and to analyze the data and do the presentation. And and I enjoyed it. And that 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 was the role I did for a number of years. But it's yeah. very different to the role that I'm doing now, which is dealing with senior stakeholders who are having to deliver to the leadership team and make big commercial decisions, which, you know, have implications of millions of investment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, the reason why the, the provocation of will AI kill the researcher is the relevance factor. And I sit here and go, oh, my gosh, how many departments are even remotely in a place where they can capitalize on this opportunity? And the answer is very few because the teams are disconnected and the data is not connected. It's the same points you're making. Yeah. And there's a major firm too, because in a utopian world, the opportunity for first party primary insights to drive growth strategy should be at the center. Mm. But to, as you say, there's a maturity of department and an organizational cultural issue. I mean, how many companies say they're customer centric that actually are? <laughs> but I think, you know, your provocation and, and, and disruption about, you know, will AI be the end of the researcher? The researcher themselves will be their own end if they yes. don't get it together. Amen. And I don't, and I don't say that in a mean way or being disrespectful to my peers, but we have to drive that agenda. We have to take the bull by the horns and say, look, I'm operating in this kind of culture these are my limitations. Where can I add value and convince the stakeholders that a shift in perception and a shift in the way we work would actually benefit investment and returns? So we need to drive that change. We need to lead, not just take the activation piece and be executional. We need to stop and think and say, look, how can I make a difference in this business? I love the interview you did with Oksana. Oh, she's doing some incredible work. She was doing absolutely incredible work. And the way that she also resourced, she, I think she allocated, and correct me if I'm wrong, resourced to specific priorities only. So she had a clear view of what the key priorities were that would deliver to the Clorox company in terms of commercial profit. And that's where they um, put the, the main part of the resource from the Insight team because she doesn't have a finite team. But things like that really show how we can make a difference and, and, and you know, change the way we're perceived in that organization. And, you yeah, know. you need you, like so I, I love so we'll just talk about both you and her for a sec. Classically trained researcher, agency background, now at the catalyst of transformation, 
every one of you that's been promoted into a director or head of insights role, that's more of a technical researcher, you have it in you to transform because there's evidence of others around. A lot of people will celebrate a dear friend of mine, Steph Gans from Pepsi, who's famously not a researcher and has done yeah. wonders for that insights function. But it doesn't have to be that. And I, and I think you're right. We have to get out of our own way. If we get all of our data connected and we use all these toys smart, yeah, driving strategy. And it, that's what motivates me. And that's why a lot of my provocation comes from. Yeah, and I can see you're getting really excited. And I am too, because also these tools offer one thing that the organizations want, pace. Yeah. They want pace and they want scale. They want to be able to achieve scale at pace. So what a great opportunity. So if we get our acts together, there's going to be more opportunities to then tap into these fantastic tools. But, you know, if we're still being, you know, the research-driven insight team, it's not going to happen, is it? No, it isn't. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, I still see, this is kind of a, a relatively sad observation. So I did a bunch of IDIs and market immersion recently, like this summer. With the exception of every insights department in the world buying Agile, and mm -hmm. buying Agile and being Agile are not the same thing. Very little change, I think, in terms of the disposition. And I think we need to elevate ourselves and not buy Agile, but actually change our relationship with people, process, and technology holistically. Absolutely. And, if, uh, and, and you do a lot of work in innovation. So I'm guessing you're familiar with the concept of sprints that started yes. in the tech world. Yes. I've worked with sprints in my time at GSK. And that's a very different way of working because you have to be agile enough to pivot on a daily basis, yes. if not numerous times in the same day, because you're reacting to the needs of the business and the key stakeholders. And that is a very uncomfortable place to be for some of us who are focused on research and processes and what have you. You have to be ready to, to move at pace and, 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 you know, work with things that aren't 100% available or 100% correct. You've got to build hypotheses. You've got to have confidence to move and, and, and pivot. And, and that's also coming, you know, that, that's going to come a lot, a lot more quickly than we think. Oh, for sure. And that's why, like, to me, it's, I place such an emphasis on get your data in control. Mm. Because if you have your data harmonized and in control, you can learn what you know. So when you are being agile, you can just test new hypotheses without relearning the same things. And I, this plagues corporate departments, particularly big ones, where it's yeah. like, you're you, your company already knows this. But there's also, there's also some bad behaviors that, you know, I've known... Uh, some uh, insight individuals who like to harness the data, the knowledge, you know, ring fence it. And it works as long as they're in the business, they're the go-to person and they have all the knowledge. But I see it differently. We have to embed and share that knowledge. We have to make it easily accessible to everyone so everyone can access it and manipulate the the data in different ways that's relevant to their business function. Not, you know, not sit on it for, for our own power, power um, drive and ego. That, that's, that's really damaging to an organization long term. It, it really is. This, this is the shift, though, from the keys of risk mitigation to the shepherds of the consumer are yeah. different. They're different jobs. Yeah. The job of the future is the shepherd of the consumer. And that is a wonderful opportunity, I think. 
Uh, and also partnership with the, the key stakeholders. I mean, I've uh, over the years partnered with many marketing directors where we've bantered and bounced ideas, watching groups, we're, share, we're you know, sharing ideas live. And from that come a lot of uh, tweaks that we make to creative language used in comms or product ideas and so on. So you can't just sit there and be delivering on a project. You've got to be involved in the day-to-day -day strategic concerns that are going on in that marketing director's head. Yes, exactly. Because then you can actually have a huge... You can add value. data says. It's, this exactly. is a lens. We know this is what we're doing. You have to be a marketeer. I think uh, in my situation, I did start off as a marketeer. I did a postgrad in marketing. And then I did two years working at Electrolux in Vienna as a marketing assistant to the marketing director. So I did start off in marketing. And I don't know whether that's influenced me as a researcher and also an insider, but I've always had my eye on the marketing strategy. So I think it probably has defined the way I like to work. Yeah, because well, if you just think of that career journey, you started with the outcome in mind versus the input. And, and I think the years that I spent agency side really taught me a whole raft of great technical skills uh, across Qualquant, but also great managing upward skills, presenting to clients, being accountable for that delivery, building the business, you know, uh, on the agency side, the business development piece. So, again, there were all great uh, lessons that contributed to the whole uh, furthering of the career down the line. Absolutely. Well, well Brian, this has been fun. Everybody, the opportunity is yours to seize it. Follow us both on LinkedIn because we're going to keep debating and pushing. <laughs> all of you. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time. I had a really a wonderful, uh, wonderful time speaking to you. Thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. So, Patricia, I hear you have two takeaways. I have two huge takeaways that I really, really resonated with me. And one okay. the recommendation, I'll do it first. I loved the way you and Fabronia, and I hope I'm saying that right, um, were like building your relationship and your friendship live on In air. front of all the listeners. In front of all of us listeners, it was fantastic. And my, my recommendation is don't be afraid of social. Don't be afraid of LinkedIn. You don't have to have, I mean, you heard them both. You don't have to have this thought out strategy of thinking and what am I going to say? And what am I going to, who am I? No, no, just who are you? You want, if you want to have a social presence, that's the first decision. Just kind of the next question to ask yourself is what moves me? What interests me? And what do I want to share with others? Right? Make sure it's fun. Make sure you're genuine. Make sure you're authentic and don't sit up a stage or something weird. Just be yourself and share it. I think that's a great call out. So I really liked how you guys were doing that, right? Yeah, and I think it's a, I think your takeaway is important, right? Because there's so much toxicity on social media in general. I'm talking like Instagram and Twitter. I know they've renamed to X, but fucking X. Are you kidding me? Um, people don't seem to be willing to debate anymore or share different points of view. And I think your point of showing up and keeping it real is important, but also like it's okay to have a dialogue with somebody because if you are you don't agree with somebody or something makes you feel defensive there's actually learning on the other side of that if you open your damn ears up um so i think that's a really positive message i appreciate it i really like that one now the two huge ones it's all about you talked about coaching and i really like that i mean she fell into coaching it was suggested to her by her family member because she was doing it naturally for her for her nieces and nephews and then she did the thing that you should do first oh i like that idea 
I'm doing this naturally. But she didn't just jump into it. She thought, let me get educated. I thought that was so simple, so basic. And so that's the message is if you want to do something and you want to make sure to do it more professionally, more, you know, officially, go get educated. Find somebody that, that meets your needs. But what I really loved is how the two of you talked about how coaching is the way to get the best out of people, right? And have, have a, your own philosophy of coaching. But there are some things that are coaching that are not negotiable, right? Some things that are not. And it's all about providing a safe space, right? Whatever label it is, if you're going to have a contract with somebody that you're going to, that has asked you for their help and you have agreed to help them on X, Y, and Z, you have to make sure that that relationship, that space that you create, physical or virtual, is safe. They cannot feel judged or yes. criticized or no, they have to be accepted because they're on a learning journey. And if you're, if you're lucky and if you open up your head, you're going to learn just as much as they do. And that's the beauty of coaching is both you learn. And the only way that you can understand them and help them as a coach is by making sure that it's a partnership of trust. That's a beautiful phrase, a partnership of trust. Not you telling them what to do, not giving advice, but creating the safe space so that they can think and have their conclusions. Now, there was something really small that she said that was huge to me is create spaces, create silent spaces. Sometimes we feel the need, and I'm included, to fill the space of silence. Sometimes people just need a space of silence to think because they've got their head yeah. full of thoughts, right? And if you give a person that space and that silence so that they can think, it might be strange at first, but if you teach them that it's okay, then they're going to use that space to create their own self-agency and to help themselves and to learn to learn, which is what you're trying to do as a coach. Absolutely. Exactly. So that's going to be like the most important thing, giving them the space so that they know that in this space that you've contracted, you are there just for them. You're not telling them what to do. You're helping them learn themselves what to do for themselves. The self-agency was really important. So I really, really like that. I can't stress how important that is. One thing is being a boss, but a coach is something totally different. I really love it. Is. I think if, if you have the benefit of a dedicated coach or you have a peer or a colleague that you respect and contract with them to be your coach, the expectation is everything Patricia just said. But a lot of times that might not be the, the benefit or perhaps you're a manager of people and you have to know when to sit back and be in listening coach mode, when to be, let me show you how to do this mode, apprenticeship, versus these are my expectations and my hard edges and I need you to do this because that's how I'm going to determine if you're doing a good or bad job. And that's very difficult. And, and so I try shit like being very specific, like I'm in listening mode, correct? Do you want me to help you solve this? Or, hey, right now I need to set some... So I think it's about contracting with people, which we obviously spoke about previously, but um, I really would recommend anybody out there who can who has access to getting a coach do it now i think the thing we probably didn't talk about so i've had a coach as everybody knows for a while i love her um literally love her haven't actually met her in person yet which i need to change but the coach will help you think and open up but this is the actual best part and we didn't even really talk about this it's still up to you what you do all the coach is going to do is help you think through it like so if you have an executive coach don't expect to be a good executive it's about the work you do. That person is just going to help you open up your thinking. Um, so like everything in life, Patricia, there is no get rich quick scheme with coaching. You still have to do the fucking work. 
gotta do the work gotta do the work yep it doesn't and as long as the coachee knows and the coach know the same thing they contract then they understand that they're the coach is there to be in service to the individual and the individual is there to work and grow that those are the rules that's right that's exactly right the second topic that i found fascinating right is all about and it's kind of two topics in one but they're it's impossible to separate it's tech information and the role of insights and the role of insights leaders so all this is like it's many roles in one but i see it as one topic why because you can't talk about the role of data and insights without talking about the role of the person that's responsible for that data so I wanted to talk about that. And I'm going to give Frank Santiago a shout out because he taught me and together with him, I became much more proficient in understanding the value of organizing the shit out of the data before you start even diving into that pool. Because if the data isn't, pardon the very technical language, but if the data isn't in an incredibly organized manner that is logical for whatever business you have and tagged in the way that you need it to tag, right? So that you can access it easily and the whole entire company or whoever is that data is relevant for can access it easily. It will not do the one thing it needs to do, which is help you make decisions in the future. Data is only there to be at the service of the person that needs to make the decision. That's, that's its function. It's not there to look pretty. It's not there to show how much money I've invested. It's not there to show how much I know. What I know is useless if I can't use it to make decisions. And so organizing the data first is very, very important. And it's for me, and, and I'll have to, I'll be honest with all of you. This is very relevant to me. And my bias is that I'm doing this right now in my company. But first I have to set it up. And the role you guys both talked about the data could be the death of the researcher because marketing people are pretty savvy, but marketing people have another primary job. Maybe their secondary job is data, but their primary job is marketing. In the same way that an insights person, their primary job is analyzing, understanding, and creating the insight so the decisions can be made, and they're part marketer as well. So it's a yin and yang situation that they need each other, right? But what we want to understand is that similar to what we were talking about, humans being humans always, even if the world changes, at the end of the day, no matter what the world we have looks like, no matter if we have one study a year versus a thousand studies a year, right? You know what I mean? We have to make sure that's organized. So whoever is working on it, they're all looking at the same data. It has to be there to make decisions. And the researcher has to be somebody to help with the business, right? Not 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 taking orders, not establishing you know checklists, but they have to be the person who adds value. They have to be the person that constructs. Yeah, maybe they construct the survey or maybe they don't. But they're they're dealing with senior stakeholders, so they have to be adding value, not be executional, and they have to drive change, which makes a difference in the business. The data is there at the service of the people who need it, and the insights people are the bridge to take that data and to make it come to life so that we understand the markets, the products and the consumers, see how it's all, there's, it's impossible to separate. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and, and this is why I'm just like calling to arms everybody to pause and elevate because the world's gonna pass us by. I mean, I, I'm, I'm starting to get increasingly frustrated with insights leaders who are just delegating this, this change. So the fact that you're as a chief growth officer driving this, I respect it because 
you're supposed to be responsible for the systems and everybody's managing up all day, but like, actually, what are you architecting? What are your teams going to work on? How is your data going to get smarter? How are you going to, to speaking of coaching, elevate your people? Um, so yeah, I really, it's funny because there is a difference between asynchronous social communication and a podcast. We thought we misunderstood or disagreed with each other. We don't. I think what we're, the cultural point she makes is, is what's holding a lot of companies back, not even necessarily the desire. Exactly. It's how to make it happen. People want things and they don't know how to make it happen, which is my main business goal. My, my main yeah. personal goal here is I spoke to everybody when I first came and I realized they all want the same thing that my boss wants. And now yes. I have to make it happen. But how to make it happen? I've asked that question so many times and I get silence. Everybody. And that's that. And that is that. I'm not going to tell you who our next episode yet is because we haven't decided which one we're going to air next. So you'll just have to wait and see. But we got a lot of heat coming up this season. Kelsey, thank you. Patricia, it's good to see you, bud. Happy fall, everybody, wherever you are in the world. Thank um, you. I'm not here for pumpkin spice lattes and flannel shirts. I'm actually wishing it was still summer, people, because summer's awesome. Okay? Everybody have a wonderful day. Bye, guys. <laughs>